go. Let it come. Well, uh, my name is David. Uh, I know, I think, most of you guys here in this room, and uh, it's been a crazy season of transition for Tara and I, but we are so thrilled and excited to be able to be here, and I'm, like, stoked to be able to come and talk about the cross and the resurrection, which I don't know if you've heard, but it's kind of a big deal, right? Like, it is the whole, like, of the Christian faith hinges on the topic of the cross and the resurrection, the sacrificial death and the victorious raising of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it, um, it, it is simultaneously like a gift, but also like a little stressful, right? Like, oh my gosh, we've been in the story for like 30 plus weeks and we are coming to the climax of the story. And what if I mess it up? Like, that's a lot of pressure, but we won't do that. As, uh, as I've been thinking about the cross and resurrection, there's an image that has been coming to my mind often, um, it, it, not just in the recent past, but like over the last couple of years. And it's been this image of, uh, it's called kintsukuro. It's this uh, Japanese art of kintsugi that takes broken and mended teaware and then infuses it with lacquer, gold, and silver and makes like a brand new piece of art out of this teaware. And it's just over and over and over again. When I think about the cross and the resurrection, I think about this beautiful picture of redemption. What is being redeemed? What is being restored? What does the cross and what does the resurrection accomplish for us? And some of the things that I love about Kintsugi is that it, um, it, it doesn't try to hide its brokenness. Right? The, the brokenness of the teaware now become a part of the story of the pot. And, and what I also love about the idea of kintsugi is what oftentimes started out as something super common, um, just an average everyday piece of houseware, now became something valuable. It became a piece of artwork, and it's beautiful. I don't know if you've ever heard of the kintsugi story. It's been floating around the Christian circles for a while, but it's new. But here's one thing that actually captured my imagination is I went and I was reading a book, and it actually told me the origin of Kintsugi. And, and it actually has this origin story that comes along with it. It's like a parable for Japanese philosophy of Kintsugi, right? How to live life with Kintsugi in mind. And here's how the origin story goes. There was a Japanese warlord in like the 13th century that invited this great a potter who um, made these custom teapots and he commissioned this potter to make him this teaware. And this Japanese warrior was so excited to have this master potter into his home to share tea with him out of one of his legendary teapots. And the servant was in the back and he was preparing the tea and he was using the, uh, the master artist teaware that he brought for this warrior. And he comes out with this set of teaware and he drops the teaware all over it. Now, the warlord was ticked, right? He was angry. And so he goes and he starts violently screaming at the servant, gets ready to take out his sword to cut the servant down. And the master artist, the potter, begins to sing a song. And he begins to sing a song of joy, oh joy. I will take what was broken in your presence and I will make something new of it. Let your anger be uh, 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 calmed down and let peace come into the home again. And apparently this song was so brilliantly sung that the warrior's heart was softened and he relented on the servant and the servant's life was saved. I thought that was a really cool thing. And then the artist who made the teaware took the broken pieces and he took lacquer and he took gold and he put it together and he mended the teapot back together. And the warlord, warlord was so pleased with the final product that he had this new piece of art that he could enjoy, that the servant went away free. Now, doesn't that story sound kind of familiar? 
Like when we think about what was accomplished at the cross and the resurrection was this beautiful relenting of anger, right? God's wrath had passed over his people, right? The the sins of the servant were assuaged and dealt with and freedom came. And then not only that, something new came. And here's what I love about that story because it's not just a story about escape of judgment, but it's a story about mending what was broken and making something new. That, to me, excited my imagination about the cross and the resurrection, broken creation to renewed creation. It's a beautiful analogy and a beautiful parable, but as I thought about it more, it's really limited, isn't it? Like, don't you wish the story of redemption was as simple and easy as that story of Kintsugi? Like, don't you wish that Jesus just sang a song and all was fixed and everything was right and the wrath was assuaged and everything was made right again and something new emerged? But the true story is not that simple. It's not that clean. It's a lot messier. Today, as we look at the climax of the redemption story, we're we're dealing with a story that is messy and convoluted and has history that is attached to it. At the cross and the resurrection, I, I hope what we ultimately see is the final victory blow over sin, Satan, and death, right? Where Jesus raises victoriously over all that corrupts and haunts the world around us. I hope what we see is that Jesus succeeds where the first humans failed, right? I I hope what we see is that Jesus um, uh, succeeded where Israel failed to be obedient to their God. I hope what we see is that Jesus succeeded where the kings and the prophets failed to live a life in a manner that was worthy of Christ and his glory. But it's not that easy. We get to this part of the story, and if we're honest, it's messy. If we're honest, we still don't really understand the cross and the resurrection that well. We have cute little phrases that we like to say. We have these Christian kind of, uh, 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 you know, a Christianese that we like to say to one another. You know, he is risen. He is risen indeed, right? Come on. We, we kind of take this part of the story, and we don't understand it, and so what we do is we reduce it to something way less than what it really is. We relegate this story to Easter. Like, David, it is October 24th. Why are we talking about the cross and the resurrection? Or we reduce it to something that maybe is a little bit more manageable, the forgiveness of sins, personal atonement. Jesus just died for my sins. But here's the problem. We wake up every day in the tension of the now and not yet. We wake up every day and we still battle with the flesh. Some of us wake up and we're still struggling in the most significant relationships in our lives, whether it's with our spouse or with our kids or with our vocations at work. We wake up every day and we still fail to be the people we know we ought to be cross and the resurrection isn't just a magic light switch that turns on the forgiveness of sins and brings the glory of God around. It's something messy and something we need to dive into. And unfortunately, when we reduce the cross and the resurrection to something less than what it was meant to be, it leads to a thin faith. You know what I mean by a thin faith? We we struggle, right, to to, to, to see the presence of Christ among us, to see the glory of God among us, to see redemption at work among us. And that causes thin worship, and it causes thin love. It causes us to be a fickle people. The Bible talks about a people who are tossed to and fro like a ship set out to sea. Anyone else ever experienced the Christian faith in that way? I know I have. And so what we want to do is we want to look and see the cross and the resurrection. What is it? What is it that brings substance and meaning to our life? What is it about that moment, that event in history that changed everything? 
Because it did, right? It wasn't just a cute idea. It wasn't just a reason to celebrate a bunny and some hidden eggs. It was a reason to sing, a reason to change and reorient your whole entire life around a person who lived and died and really did raise again. To reorient your affections towards Jesus and his way. What is this? And what we want to look at is having a bigger picture of the work of the cross and the resurrection. And, and here's how, here's what's been exciting. There's lots of things that we can talk about when it comes to the cross and resurrection. But what's been exciting for me and what I think is important for us as a community today is to be able to see what happened on that day when Jesus died and three days later he rose again. The first thing we see is that the cross and the resurrection isn't just a personal forgiveness work, but it's an inaugurating work, right? On that day, a king really did take his throne. Something happened in the principalities and the, the, the powers to be in the earth shifted and got flipped upside down, and Jesus really did become king of all the earth, of all of creation on that day. It was an inaugurating work. Jesus was exalted and lifted up, and he took his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. But it's also a liberating work. See, there's a people who were set free, right? They're set free from guilt, set free from shame, set free from the, 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 the pains of, of not having a hope for a future. There's a liberating work that happened on that day. And then there's a renewing work. There's a hope of new creation, a work of renewal that is happening. So please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And we want to look and see this work that happened on that day, this inaugurating work, this liberating work, and this work of renewal. As I've already said, for the 30 plus last weeks, we have been rooting ourselves in one story. And the invitation for us is to know God and what he's up to in the world and to discover our own identity as God's beloved children. And the way that we've been saying that is we want to discover or find our place in God's story. And the cross and the resurrection is the ultimate power that... that um, that elevates us from our pitiful state and places us in God's story in such a beautiful way. And the cross and the resurrection are not just the center of the story, but they're the center of human history. It's the center of our faith. It's the center of everything we know and love and claim to be about followers of Jesus Christ. And it started back in the garden. Right? And, and, and I hope we feel the movement of this story where humans tried to live life without God. They did. They rebelled. And, and here's what I love. In the beginning of the story, what we see is God's response. He responded with love. That is, as Adam and Eve moved away from God, God's loving grace moved towards him, pursued them, right? Pursued them in the garden. God responds to his fallen, broken, rebellious creatures from the beginning with love. But he also responded with justice. God being a holy and righteous and perfect God needed to remove sin from the presence of his dwelling place. And so Adam and Eve got moved outside of the garden. Justice happened. But God also responded with mercy. He made a promise. He made a beautiful promise. He, he established a plan to set things right. This was God's world, and humans are the crown of his creation, and they're made in his image. He wasn't going to let it die. But humans kept taking the goodness of God and bending it inward and the glory that was meant to flood out of the garden and fill the earth terminated on the self and the effects of the fall of sin are devastating. We all know that and feel that every day. But God 
didn't relent. He moved his restoration project forward and he made promises and he gives means of grace. He formed a new family through Abraham and he provided a way to at least temporarily deal with sin with a sacrificial system where his, his presence would dwell amongst the people. And while they were living in the tension of their own brokenness, he offered up a sacrificial system that could deal with with sin at least limitedly. And then he even reluctantly gave them a king to show them what it looks like when power is used for glory of God and the good of the world. But sin had thoroughly corrupted the human heart, but God kept making his promises. That's what we read in Isaiah 40. God kept coming to his people who were thoroughly corrupt and kept abandoning God's way and he kept making promises. And this is what he said. He said God promised that he was going to do something about the condition of sin in the world and the effects of sin that had taken root. God promised to send a king that would rule justly and mercifully. God promised that he would heal our sin-sick hearts and liberate us from the enemy within. God promised that he would dwell with us again and everything that was swallowed up by, life, by death would be reanimated with new life. He kept promising and promising and promising that everything was going to be made right. Now, these are massive hopes. Outlandish claims. As we read the story and saw the failures of Israel's people, the question that should come up when we hear these promises is how? How in the world are you going to fulfill these outlandish claims? How? How are you going to set things right? How are you going to come and rule justly over all of creation? How are you going to deal with the wickedness in our own hearts? How are you going to come and dwell with your people when people are saturated with sin and brokenness? How? And then you fast forward and Jesus enters the story. Everybody was waiting for these promises to be fulfilled. And Jesus comes on the scene and he comes in like a flood, right? He, he's this man who teaches with authority. All of a sudden, he knows things about the word and the world that seem unknowable. He, he teaches with the type of authority that as he's teaching the word, things begin to become clear. Hope begins to rise again. And then he seems to have power over the elements, and he starts by changing water into wine. But it doesn't stop there. He starts healing the sick and curing the leper. And those who are on the outside of the margins of culture begin to be invited on the inside. This good news of great joy had entered in like a flood. And the sick were healed and even the dead were rising. Demons listened to his voice. Could you imagine a people coming in and looking at this man and saying, Is this it? Is this the moment? Is this the king, the hope of the nation? Is Israel going to be restored? This is happening now. God's promise is being fulfilled. But as quickly as Jesus enters into the scene, the hope of God's people begin to unravel. The triumphal entry. Turns out not to be the military procession of the coming king, but a prophetic indictment on the household of God. The Last Supper was not disciples getting a pep talk for the last stand against Rome, but a display of humble service, even towards his betrayer. Can you see the hope? sure why that is not working but even Jesus's prayer in the garden maybe this was it right maybe this was going to be the time like Elijah remember when Elijah prayed and he called down fire from heaven or maybe when the when the skies opened up and an army of angels came here comes Jesus going into his final prayer maybe this is going to be it 
And instead of calling down fire from heaven, he lays down his own will. What the heck? What's going on? Do you feel the tension, the hope of the world is now betrayed, mocked, beaten, crucified, and buried. If this is God's plan for the world, this is the strangest rescue mission I've ever seen in my life, right? And then here comes our text today. The death and the resurrection of Jesus. What is going on? And I hope we feel the tension in this moment. What is really going on? I'm actually going to start in chapter 22, verse 66. It reads like this. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priest and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are Messiah, they said, tell us. Now, partly, they're trying to trap him. They've been trying to trap Jesus for a long time. But I think partly, they're trying to, like, okay, God. Like, if you're going to lift Israel out of the state that they're in, if you're going to put us back up in our right and proper place in society, now would be a good time to show up. And Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. And then he says this, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, that's what you say I am. You guys are saying that. And they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. You see, Jesus is coming into the scene and he is coming in as a rescuer, but not the type of rescuer they were hoping for. He was coming in to be inaugurated as king, but not the type of king they were looking for. And then the whole assembly rose, and they led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and the claims to be Messiah the king. This is two truths and a lie. This is the opposite. Two lies and a truth, right? Jesus was not trying to subvert a nation, but trying to come and be the healer of that nation. And he was not trying to oppose uh, payment of taxes to Caesar. As a matter of fact, he did the opposite. He said, give to Caesar what is due to Caesar. But he did just claim that he is the son of man. And so he said, Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he says again, you have said so. Jesus replied then, uh, Jesus replied, then Pilate announced to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no basis for a charge against this man. This is the first time we're going to hear that in this text. Pilate, the fifth governor of Rome, says this guy is innocent. But the, the chief priest and the, the rulers and the Israelites, they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate said, oh, he's a Galilean. I don't want to deal with this mess. You know what? Let me ship him off to Herod. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. And then when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of sorts. So he plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Remember, this is the same guy who killed Jesus' best friend. John the Baptist ordered his beheading. This is, the same, this is the son of the same guy who put out a decree to kill any child under two terrified of the Messiah. This guy, Herod, who was riddled with guilt and probably a little suspicious of Jesus because of what he come home, now finds Jesus like a circus act. Maybe he'll do a magic trick. Maybe he'll show me something cool. So he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort, and he plied with him, but Jesus remained silent. 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, the king, dressing him in an elegant robe, the inauguration. They sent him back to Pilate with a crown of thorns and a purple robe mocking his lordship in that day. And that day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. I love that Luke includes this little snippet of information. Herod and Pilate were enemies, and now they're friends. See what he's doing is it's almost like Jesus's presence like ushers in reconciliation. It doesn't matter where you are or who you are. It's like when Jesus is around, things get reconciled to one another. And then Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence. I've found no basis for your charges against him and neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death the third time. Jesus was innocent. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted away, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us instead. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder, wanting to release Jesus. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But the loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, Barabbas, and the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the strangest, weirdest rescue ever. The hope of the people just womp, 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 right, in that moment. The king they thought that was going to get crowned was now mocked. But listen, it might be weird, but it is an inauguration. There is a king being inaugurated in this moment. He's just not the type of king that they were looking for. You see, Pilate and Herod were both utterly um, unimpressed by Jesus. Right? And listen, his innocence really had uh, uh, nothing to do with his divinity or righteousness. His innocence actually had everything to do with his humanity. Here was a humble, meek man who gathered with him, uh, uh, instead of an army, a bunch of like outcast servants. They looked at Jesus, and to them he was weak and not a threat. To them he was just a man. He served the poor. He hung out with the marginalized. He didn't assemble an army, but a man of misfits' servants. And so they mocked him, not because he was a threat, but because he was lowly. See, for Pilate and Herod, power didn't look like that. For Pilate and Herod, power looked like oppression and force. Power looked like an army and ruler. Power looked like riches and a following. A king had a procession behind him, a procession of people well-dressed and well-educated and well-resourced, but Jesus didn't have any of that. But to the council of elders and the chief priests, the church, the Israelites, the people of God... They were threatened by Jesus. They didn't, they, they didn't want Jesus to be Messiah King. To him, he was a threat. To the religious elite, he was a threat because Jesus spent his life, listen to this, celebrating with the wrong type of people. Jesus spent his life offering forgiveness to the wrong type of people 
Jesus spent his ministry in giving hope and peace to the wrong type of people. And then when Jesus did give his warnings and his words of judgment, he did that to the wrong people. See, it was all messed up. They were looking for a wrong king. Everybody is confused about Jesus, this Messiah. He's not the type of king anyone was expecting. This was an upside-down inauguration. But listen, Jesus wasn't on trial that day. According to Luke, this was not Jesus' trial. See, the world was on trial that day. This picture is a picture, a clear sign of how a broken world had gone so far, moved so far from God that they couldn't rescue God or couldn't recognize God among them. And I don't know about you, but I know oftentimes many of us have a hard time recognizing the lordship of Jesus on the earth and even in our own lives, don't we? Oftentimes, I'm going to try to put this up here again real quick. If I can. Oftentimes, we ourselves look for the wrong types of king in our lives. And it begs the question, as the crowds are looking in on Jesus and, and, and half of them are unimpressed by Jesus and half of them are terrified and just want to do away with him, what type of kings are we looking for? And here's our question is, man, what are some of our functional saviors in our lives? Who do we look to for rescue that we can't recognize? Some of us might look to people it could be a good thing. It could be our spouses. It could be our friends. It could be our pastors. It could be coworkers that we're putting our, our hopes in. Some of it could be things or ideas. Man, if I get that next new shiny thing or, man, I love this next new shiny idea that's coming out in the world. Or maybe it's circumstances. See, humanity had moved so far away from God they couldn't recognize the Holy One of Heaven when He was in front of them. And it wasn't... It, it was just because He was not the King they expected. See, what they wanted was a roaring lion. But Jesus came as a sacrificial lamb. He came in gentleness and in love. He came pure and spotless and without blemish. He came to be the new Passover lamb for the people. And it was his blood that now covers the cross, the doorposts of the world. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Jesus was inaugurated as king that day, but not the type of king most of us look for. See, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? It means that all the power structures of the world are under the leadership of King Jesus. It means all the wisdom comes from King Jesus. It means that Jesus speaks a better word over our lives. It means that we ourselves have a new person, a new authority over our lives. Not only does Jesus have our affections, but King Jesus has our attention. There's a new ruler in this world. And as the world stands on trial, Jesus stands in our place. It's a beautiful inauguration. But it's not just an inauguration of a king, it's, 
It's it's a liberating work as well. Look at verses 26 through 43. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to him, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women. The womb that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is an interesting passage, right? That that these women who genuinely were weeping over the wounded Jesus, right? The one who was mocked, the one who had served them and given them hope was beaten and mocked and now is getting led to his certain death. They're wailing and weeping for Jesus, rightly so. They're sad at what is going on with him. But Jesus turns around and says, don't weep for me. Right? Weep for yourselves. Right? Because I, I, this is not something that's happening to me. This is something that's happening for you. This is your, the, the liberating power at work. Your king is coming to take up its rightful place. And it requires a death. It requires that I stand in your place. And then... Luke gives us another picture of this. And he says, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there. Along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they are dividing up his clothes by casting lots. And the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar. Here's the inauguration, the cupbearers coming to offer the new king his wine that's due to him. He says, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They're pleading with Jesus twice now. Save yourself. There was a written notice above him which reads, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself the third time. They're pleading with Jesus to save himself. And then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminals rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, it's this beautiful refrain that we hear as Jesus is on the cross the world is shouting save yourself, save yourself save yourself isn't that the refrain of our culture save yourself see Jesus is here on this moment and he's not interested in saving himself but he's interested in saving the world It's this monumental moment that Luke is trying to pull out of this moment that the whole point of the cross is not for Jesus to save himself, but to sacrifice himself for you and I. And we see this picture of two criminals on the cross and Jesus in the middle. And the person that was supposed to be on Jesus' cross was Barabbas. And Barabbas got set free, and Jesus took Barabbas' place and sacrificed himself. Jesus doesn't deserve to die. Jesus deserves to sit on the throne. But in this moment, for this work, Jesus lays down his right for the sake of others. 
Can I just have real talk for a minute? We live in a world that loves the idea of where we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and the, the most valuable thing is individual freedom. Jesus, if you're king, save yourself. You don't deserve this. You have a right to sit on your throne, not die a criminal's death. But Jesus lays down his rights for the sake of others. See, this is a liberating sacrifice, a necessary work. See, in order for life to come, we needed a death. And this was always the work that God was going to do. It, it started in the garden, right, where Adam and Eve sinned, and they're, they're naked and ashamed and hiding from God. And God slaughters an animal and clothes him with the animal's skin so that their shame could be covered. And Abraham is, is called to be a faithful people, and, and he's given this promise to have this newborn son, and God asked him to sacrifice his son. And in the moment where the dagger was going to drop, God provides a substitute for Isaac. And a death fell on a goat, a scapegoat. And in the exodus... The wrath of God was coming over an oppressive people and, and a sacrifice was made, a pure spotless lamb and the blood of that lamb was put over the doorpost and the wrath of God passed over God's people because of a sacrifice. And then in the temple, he set up a system where, where people would come in and they would offer a sacrifice for their atonement of their own sins, sins of omission and sins of commission, sins that they committed willingly and knowingly and sins they just omitted from but by not doing what God had called them to do in their lives. And now we get to this picture of the blood of Jesus hanging on the wood as a sacrifice, a Passover lamb, a substitute. And here's why, because sin requires a payment of death. Sin always leads to death, but it's not just a physical death, it's a death to our identity, right? We saw Adam and Eve, they, were, they, they, they became ashamed of their own nakedness. Relational death, we, we, we see it uh, uh, with uh, God and Adam and Eve, but we also see it with Cain and Abel, and we see it with Adam and Eve together, and we see it with nation upon nation. It's communal. We have these dividing lines of hostility that, that have come between us because our identity is so wrapped up in other things. It's a physical death, a spiritual death, a religious death. Sin always leads to death, but sin also requires a death. And Jesus came in to pay that debt. It's a liberating work for us because it deals with the thing we need most. Not the enemy on the outside, but the enemy within. Sin that dwells in our hearts. And then finally, we read this last story. Luke 24. After Jesus was inaugurated as king and did his liberating work by taking our place on the cross, he died. And after his death, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women that followed Jesus took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were there, they were wondering about this, and suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood behind, beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over the hands 
over to the hands of sinners. He must be crucified and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other disciples with them who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe them because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Wait, wait a minute. Jesus wasn't there? And you saw angels and he's raised from the dead? Maybe he is the king. Maybe liberation is among us. And when they, Peter, however, on hearing this, got up and ran to the tomb and bending over, he saw the stripes of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself what had happened. See, in this moment, We see death swallowed up by life. The tomb is empty and the work of renewal is beginning. The work of the cross is not just an inaugurating work where Jesus is set up as king over all creation and, and, and the principalities and powers are now shifting in the earth. And not just a liberating work where he's dealing with the condition of sin that's keeping us from being who God is calling us to be. But he's doing a renewing work where death is actually getting swallowed up by life. I love what the angels say. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Uh, because Jesus just died. Right? Seems like a pretty basic question. They're not stupid. But that's a question for all of us. Why do we look for the living among the dead? Why are we still trying to find life in, 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 in the lower, lesser stories of this world? Why are we still running around and pretending and performing and not experiencing the liberating power of the cross in our own lives? And what I love about stopping in this moment is is it doesn't end with a definitive statement, but a question. I wonder what just happened. And that is my question for us today. I wonder what just happened. See, the world was turned upside down that day. Death did somehow lead to life. Sacrifice did somehow um, turn into greatness. And love did somehow prevail over hate. And somehow, it's by his stripes that we are healed. Death was swallowed up with life. The renewal begins with us. Our wounds are no longer meant to be hidden, but rather filled up with the healing salve of God's grace and the strengthening gold of Christ's resurrected righteousness. See, wounds now become part of our story, like the Kintsugi bull. Freed from guilt, freed from shame, restored in value. And now we can stop trying to escape humanity, but really begin to learn what it truly means to live and be human as we follow King Jesus. See, personal salvation is good, but there's so much more. See, there's cosmic renewal. A king has come, he's here. There's communal renewal. A new family is born. One that's not divided by petty things like politics and uh, not, not divided by um, uh, petty things like preference. But we come together in sacrificial and love and service like King Jesus did for us on the cross. And personal renewal comes as he gives us a new heart we get to live by the Spirit of Christ as, as the Holy Spirit begins to move into the broken pieces of our lives like, like the Kintsugi bowl and begin to bring life and healing and redemption into our lives. Imbuing us not just with power and courage, but imbuing us with love and hope and compassion. See, 
Jesus wasn't a king for the powerful, but he was a king for the lowly and the broken and those in need. And he was bringing liberation to all people who struggle with the condition of sin. I don't know about you, but I think that includes all of us in this room. And he was giving a hope that one day things can change. And so as we move into a time, as we move towards the table, I want to remember the cross, but I want to ask a question. I want to reflect on one idea. I wonder what happened that day. Normally, I would have you guys break up, but I just want, as we think about the cross and the resurrection, about the brutal death, but the empty tomb, I wonder what happened that day. I wonder if the king had come. I wonder if the captives had been set free. And I wonder if the renewal of all things has begun. Would you pray with me? Father, God, as we move into a time of communion, listening to this real complex good news. God, that doesn't just deal with my personal sins, but deals with the the scope of, of, of all of creation. God, I pray that you would meet us as king that you would free us from the enemy within, God, that, that when we talk about liberation, that we're not just talking about moralism, but we're talking about the, the wounds that we carry because of the oppression we've experienced in our own lives and the wounds that we carry because of shame and guilt and the wounds that we carry because of, 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 of feeling like we failed. God, that we're liberated from those things, really liberated from those things, that we can stop pretending and performing for one another, and we can start being family. God, that the invitation of your Lordship could be here. God, we love you in Jesus' name. Every week, the center of our faith is represented in the table, the cross and the resurrection, the blood that was spilled and the body that was broken, the hope of the new kingdom that has come in the resurrected Christ, the hope that one day there will be a banquet where every tear has been wiped and every tongue will confess that Jesus is